today I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 19. Timepieces. The most accurate timepiece is the NIST F2 timepiece. It's accurate to one second in 300 million years. I, I have to ask this question. How do you know? Who was here 300 million years ago to say, yep, it's accurate? This NIST F2 is known as a cesium-based atomic fountain clock. And this means that they determine the length of a second by measuring a natural vibration inside a cesium atom. Within the clock, lasers then push together a ball of 10 million cesium atoms at once and cool them to near absolute zero degrees, which helps to reduce the noise. And then the ball is tossed up in a three-foot chamber passing through a microwave beam. And the microwave beam kicks some of the cesium atoms up into a higher energy state, which causes them to emit light. The cesium ball is tossed up and down several times, slightly changing the wavelength of the microwave beam each time. Engineers are doing this to search for a particular frequency, and they know that they found the right one when the microwave kicked up the most of the atoms, producing the, amount, the maximum amount of light. And this is then known to be 9,192,631,770 hertz. You're going to need to know this. Not really. You're not going to need to know this. Listen. It's a natu- of a natural resonance frequency of cesium, which defines the length of a second in our modern world. He goes, so what does that mean to us? Why do we look at that and why do we need a, an accurate timepiece? Well, for one thing, your smartphone. Your smartphone works on a timepiece. Your GPS works on a timepiece to tell you where you're going. Any of you ever turn on the little map app on your phone to get you from one place to the other. Yesterday, Lynette and I were up in Leesburg. We were trying to find Calvary Chapel, Leesburg. They had moved from one place to another. And uh, my mother and father-in-law are are going to that church up there. And and as I was trying to find it, there was, they were on Main Street. But the thing is, is that Main Street, it was closed. And so I was trying to find how to get there. So I kept traversing. I was listening to Siri She's not too smart when it comes to detours. And so I'm going and I end up, Siri goes, make a right, you know, correction, make a right, you know, at Conrad, you know, make a left at Main Street. And you go, I can't make a left at Main Street right now because it's the road's closed. So you actually pass through Main Street again and you see, you go up to the next street and you go, okay, well, I'm going to take the next street over. And then you go down and it says, you know, in a course correction and it keeps taking me and I go back down that road and I, well, the street is still blocked there. And so I go down because I know there has to be an opening. So I listened to Siri, listen to Siri, we passed Main Street about four times before we were able to find and get beyond where the road closed signs were and then backtrack our way back to the church, which was really cool because the church actually reminds me of those of you who were with us at our Laurel Street property. That's what their church looks like. It was just like really, really cool. It was like going back in time. So a timepiece, an accurate timepiece is necessary in order for your GPS to work. I don't know how all that works, but, you know, I'm told that an accurate timepiece, if it's not accurate, it's going to throw you off. It's going to throw you off. Now, here's the thing. An accurate timepiece, the NIST F2, is is necessary in order to keep our GPS on target, in order to keep us to knowing where we're going. 
Well, there's another timepiece that's even more accurate than the NIST F2 timepiece, and that's called the Bible. The Bible is actually more accurate than the NIST F2 timepiece because you know what? Every second, every moment, every millisecond upon the face of this earth is known by and to God. He knows exactly what's going to go on at exactly the right moment at exactly the right time. And so you're going to understand how this time works together in our message and why I'm even bringing up this whole idea of time. In Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, it says, When he, Jesus, had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. This is uh, Sunday morning where we're representing today. This is the Sunday morning on this day. Some 2,000 years ago. It's the Sunday morning prior to the day of the crucifixion. So when Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, verse 29, when he came near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose him and bring him here. And if anyone asks you, why are you losing him? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of him. And so those who were sent departed and found it just as he had said it to them. And just as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. 2,000 years ago, Jesus had a couple of the disciples go and get a colt and a donkey. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. There's two forms of prophecy that is explained in the Bible. One form of prophecy would be the speaking forth the word of God. I think that pastors who are truly in the word and are truly empowered by the Holy Spirit and are actually speaking on behalf of the Lord when they get into a pulpit because they've done their research, they've got into the word and they spent their time with the Lord, they actually are prophesying as they're speaking from the pulpit. And so they're actually speaking forth the word of God. But then there's another form of prophecy, and it's the one that's a little bit more familiar to all of us. When we think about prophecy, we think of prophet. We think of somebody who actually not just speaks forth the word of God, but speaks something future that is going to happen without really knowing how it's going to happen. But they speak something in the future that will come to pass. The Bible does that. It's one of the proof texts of the Bible. It's a thing that the Quran can't do. It's the thing that the Bhagavad Gita doesn't do. It's the thing that the Book of Mormon doesn't do. It's the thing that the, that the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses doesn't do. Here's the thing. The Bible speaks forth the truth of what's going to happen in the future. And there's no other book upon the face of this earth. So just get rid of those things because if the Bible says something's going to happen and it has been proven over and over and over again to come to pass, why would you spend time even looking into those other things? Because they're inaccurate. There's no way of proofing whether or not they are accurate or truthful because they don't put anything in there that would be a cause for us to actually check against whether or not it's an accurate timepiece or not. Well, see, the Bible is an accurate timepiece. The Bible said that Israel, the Jews, were actually going to be displaced from their city. But then there was going to come a time later on, long time down the road, that the Jews would then be given back to their country. They would come back to their country. And it's exactly what happened. 
Back in A.D. 70, that's 0070. Today we live in 2015, 2015. But back in 0070, General Titus destroyed Israel. Here's the thing. Israel stopped being Israel. Their land was taken from them. And they were dispelled and disposed of and, and moved into different lands and different countries. But you know, the resilience of that country, the resilience of those people, the Jewish people, they maintained their nationality even though they didn't have a nation to which to call their home and to call their own. They lived, you had American Jews, you had German Jews, you had Polish Jews, you had European Jews. You had Jews all over the world, but you didn't have any Israeli Jews because there was no Israel. Until, all of a sudden, Israel gave, was given their nation back on March 14th of 1948. Think about yourself for just a second. Some 1950 years, and give or take a few years, because I just tried to do that math in my head real quick, so if that was wrong, then just know it's a long time. Here's the thing. For a people to not have a country to call their own, and yet maintain their nationality, Show me another people group that have that distinction. Upon the face of the earth, there isn't one. If the Jewish people are not even just a proof text that God is real, uh, there's another timepiece right there. God said, it's going to happen. You're not going to have a land, but then I'm going to give you your land back. Jesus then talks about it in Matthew chapter 24. He talks about the regathering of that nation. The regathering of the nation of Israel back together again. He goes, once that generation sees these things that are going to happen, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things that I have just foretold will come to pass. And Jesus had just got done speaking about the seven-year tribulation period that is coming upon the earth sometime. Could happen and start today. Could happen today. Could start today. The rapture of the church can it precedes the seven-year tribulation upon the face of this earth. The tribulation period is a time where God is dealing with the Christ-rejecting world. And He does it in very harsh ways. That's why they call it the Great Tribulation. There's great tribulation that is being generated in heaven being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. So much so that they are so angry at God. The Bible says that there are many, a couple of occasions in there that all this judgment is coming down from heaven and the people that will be here in the tribulation will be sitting there and cursing God and saying, you know, knock it off. They won't, they won't bow their knee to the Lord. But what they do is that they sit there and they curse God because of the judgment that's coming down upon them. And we might look at that and go, wow, God, that's kind of cruel that you would pour out judgment on these guys. And I would just turn that around on you and say, no, I think it's the most gracious thing God could ever do for a Christ-rejecting world because once again, He's giving them opportunity to turn. To turn. He's giving them one more opportunity to say, would you please just see that you are playing with fire? I had an instance this... this uh, I've had an instance recently talking to a person who doesn't have a relationship with the Lord, I don't believe. Here's the thing. Talking to a person who's a about to die about Christ is, is something that I, when you know that they're breathing, possibly they're last in front of you, 
I don't have a lot of time to be polite and get to a place where, hey, hey, you know, can you, you know, let's talk about this, let's talk about this, let's soften, you know, Christ to bring you in and get you into a conversation. No, don't have enough time for that. Basically, in a situation like that, I've learned from a guy that has long since passed away. His name was Dr. Walter Martin. He was the guy that actually wrote the book, The Kingdom of the Colts. I think we have his book over here. Dr. Walter Martin was a, was a guy that loved people, but he said, I find myself around the sick and the dying. And he spoke like that. I find myself around the sick and the dying because you don't have to convince them that their time on earth is about up. And so I go and I tell them, you're going to die. Where are you going to go? You know, and, and he, he was very, I mean, when I first time I heard, him, I'm going, man, that's, that's kind of rough, man. I mean, be a little bit more gentle. I mean, these guys are dying. I mean, and, and, and yet as you hear what he's saying, it made so much sense. And in my instance, I sit here and I look at this and I go, you know what, here it is. I can soften the tone. I can put frosting on the cake. I can do all of that kind of stuff. But if this guy dies while I'm frosting the cake, he's lost for eternity. I don't have time to sit there and frost the cake so that it would be more palatable for you to hear. You need to hear that if you breathe your last right here as you're looking at me, you're going to spend an eternity in hell if you don't have Jesus Christ. So right now, my friend, you don't play games with God any longer. And I know that it's a tough situation. It is tough to have to talk to somebody and be very frank. You have lived your life not for Christ, not for the Lord. In fact, you've, been, you've, you've actually spoken against Him much. But right now, God loved you so much that He brought me into this room knowing that you're breathing your very last breaths. And you may not end. I may not end this whole conversation before you, you breathe your last. Here's the thing. He loved you so much that even now, in spite of everything you've ever done, He brought me to you to show you the way, to give you the gift of eternal life through Christ. But He's not going to force you into heaven. He's not going to force you into heaven, my friend. The choice is always going to be in your hand. You're either going to accept Him or you're going to reject Him. And if you reject Him, it is on you. But God loved you so much that He sent me here to talk to you. Let's say you. And I gave him an opportunity to come to Christ, and I don't know if he ever came to the Lord or not. He's still alive right now. I, I hope and pray that he, he does accept the Lord. But, but here's the thing. We're living in a day and an age where the nation of Israel became a nation once again in May 14th, 1948. Jesus said that generation isn't going to pass away until all the things that I just talked about, the tribulation period and all that is going to take place. Am I setting dates? I'm not. But I, I think that we look at the season that we have around us. There are many, many telltale signs that, that show us that time is short. It's probably, you're starting to see that there's a little bit more impassioned message behind my pulpit ministry here the last while, you know. Last week I kind of was pretty passionate and pretty fiery here for the reason being, guys, this is not something to play games with. Christianity is not something to play games with. God is not somebody to play games with. Christ hanging on a cross for your sin is, something not to, is not something to play games with. Here's the thing. We're living in the very last moments. Ah, Pastor Don, come on. Really? They've been saying that for a long time. Yeah, that's what they said to Peter. 
That's what, that's what they said in Peter, it, Peter wrote. He goes, listen, the naysayers will say, hey, our forefathers said all those things too. And they're so long since dead. Well, I wonder the disciples, the disciples as they were living, they were just normal fishermen, tax collectors, you know, various forms of employment, you know, of, of, of job professions. And here it is. The people, they thought all things go on as they always have been, because you know what? For many thousands of years, they've been talking and prophesying that, that the Messiah is going to come, that the prophet's going to come. And you know what? He hasn't come. Why would he ever come in my time? You know what? He did come in the days of Peter, James, and John, didn't he? He did die on a cross. What happened? Those who had dedicated their life to ministry missed him. The chief priests, the rabbis, Many of those men who were the religious rulers in that day, they missed the opportunity to see God in human flesh coming for them because, well, it couldn't happen in our lifetime. I'm going to explain it away. But when I see things that are happening, about a year and a half ago, when I hear a man who's not a Christian, but who is the leader, the political leader of the nation of Israel, standing in Auschwitz, standing there behind a pulpit, behind a podium. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, the most powerful man in all of Israel, he stands there and he says, man has tried to exterminate the Jew. And I tell you this, not only has he failed, but we have our nation. And there is a Bible passage from Ezekiel that speaks of a valley of dry bones. That God prophesies to the, to the prophet Ezekiel. And he asks Ezekiel, can these bones yet live? They're just a bunch of dry, dead bones in this valley. And Ezekiel said to the Lord, Lord, you know, I don't know. What he's saying is, I don't know. Lord, you know. He said, Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and tell them to live. And so Ezekiel, he says, hey, get up, live. These bones, they rattle together. Ligaments come back on. Tendons come back on. Flesh comes back on. He says, now speak the breath into them. And breath came back into them. It's a vision of one day Israel who had been dismantled and killed and driven away. God was speaking through Ezekiel. There's coming a day when the valley of dry bones, the dead bones, dead Israel, will have the flesh put back on its bones and it will live once again and it will be the nation of Israel once again. And in the Auschwitz prison camp, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is not a Christian, says, I declare to the world today that Ezekiel 37 is fulfilled. When I hear that Ezekiel 37 is fulfilled from a man who's not a Christian, I go, okay, well then what does Ezekiel 38 say? And 39 and 40. We're on the cusp, gang, of such things that we've never seen before. Yeah, wow. Really? Yeah. Prophecy. 4,000 years ago, or 6,000 years ago, I'm sorry, 
4,000 B.C., God speaking to Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3. You remember it was the fall in the garden. God told Eve and Adam and the serpent as he was doling out judgment because Eve ate of the fruit of the tree and Adam came and ate with her. And then they blamed, started blame shifting everywhere. But God began to dole out judgment. But there's one prophetic judgment that God laid out there uh, that is significant to our passage. And that is, it says, God spoke to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. God speaking, he says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, Satan, and the woman's seed, Eve. Now understand this. A woman has an egg. A woman does not have a seed. I don't want to get too graphic or detailed in this, but we understand. The only time that a woman is referenced to having a seed is when it is dealing with the virgin birth of Christ, the virgin birth of the Lord. And so... Some 6,000 years ago, about 4,000 B.C., we have God speaking to Satan saying, there's going to be enmity between you and your seed and her seed. There's coming a Messiah, he's saying. There's coming a ruler. What will happen between your seed and, and her seed? There's going to be enmity. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to, you're going to hurt him. But he's going to crush your power, he says. It's exactly what happened on the cross. It's what we'll celebrate next week. In 1405 B.C., that's some 3,400 years ago, Moses spoke directly in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He said this. He said, just you can read the whole thing from verse 9 through 19, but Moses is bringing the children of Israel into the promised land. He says, when you come into the land of Israel, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not... Learn to follow the abomination of those nations that are in it right now. It says in verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from your midst. In verse 18, This prophet like me from among our brethren, and God will put his words into his mouth, and he shall speak all that God commands him, and it shall be that whoever will not hear God's word which he speaks in God's name, God will require it of him. Moses is foretelling the coming of the Messiah. All of the religious rulers, all of the religious rulers understood that there's coming one like Moses that's coming down the pike somewhere. We don't know when, we don't know how, but we know it's going to come. And so for 30, you know, for 1400 years prior to Christ coming, because it didn't happen in other people's lifetimes, people become lethargic. People become disinterested because it surely can't happen in my lifetime. It surely can't happen in my lifetime. And then it did happen in their lifetime. And you know what happened? They missed out. The religious rulers ended up putting Christ to death. And the people. He go, well, that's kind of hard to make that distinction that what Moses was talking about was actually, he was actually talking about Jesus. Well, I don't know. Let's look. In Acts chapter 3, you can jot this note down. In Peter's second message, we're going to fast forward some 1400 years. It's about 32 AD. This is 32, 33 years after Christ has, has been uh, born and he's lived. 
Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen again. He's ascended into heaven. Peter's second message to the people who were actually responsible for putting Jesus to death. And after Jesus had died, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, the body of Pete's message said this, verse 19 of Acts chapter 12, verses through, verses 12 through, Acts chapter 3, verses 12 through 26. In verse 19, in the body of Peter's message, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus who was preached to you before. For Moses, listen, for Moses truly said to our fathers in in verse 22 of Acts chapter 3, Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things. Whatever he says to you, it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes? And then he goes on and he encapsulates all the prophets. He says, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many have has spoken, they've also foretold of these days, even all the way back to Abraham. For God even said to Abraham, and in your seed, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So every prophet that we read of in the Bible foretold of this time where Jesus Christ was going to come on the scene. The Bible is a perfect timepiece. It perfectly tells us what's going to happen. Jesus, you know, you know, so Peter said that maybe he was mistaken. I don't know. Jesus talks about how he just gets done feeding 5,000 people. John chapter 6, you can jot that note down you can look it up later just to see if i'm telling you the truth john chapter 6 verse 14 jesus has just got done feeding 5000 people and here's what the people say the people say about jesus this is truly the prophet who has come into the world what are they saying this is who moses talked about this is the prophet that Moses talked about. Now here we are some, some uh, uh, 1,500 years later, 1,400 years later, and they're saying, this is the prophet that Moses talked about. This is him. This is him. This is the one that is going to come on. This is not just the prophet. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is the chosen one. This is God's called one. This is the one. Here's the thing. Just prior to Jesus feeding these 5,000, he's talking to the men who will eventually put him to death, the religious rulers. And he says to them, guys, verse 39 of John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verse 39, again, jot jot it down if you're a note taker. Jesus said to these religious rulers, he says, you search the scriptures. Now, they didn't have the New Testament because the New Testament is being written even as Jesus was living, right? They don't have the New Testament. All they have is the Old Testament. And so here's what Jesus says to them. You search the Scriptures, which is the Old Testament. For in them, Jesus says, you think you have life. But I tell you that they speak of me. Speak of me. Does Jesus believe that his coming was foretold? Of course he did. He says in verse 46 and 47, he says, listen, guys... In John chapter 5, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. 
for Moses wrote about me. These are Jesus' own words. But if you do not believe his writings, Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? I think it's starting to get cool in here. Everybody's putting coats on and everything. So you can turn it up a little bit if you want. He said, if you're not going to believe Moses' writings, how are you going to believe my words? But as the people, they looked at it and they said, truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world that Moses spoke about. The very next verse in John chapter 6, verse 14, where it says that the people were, were looking at Jesus and going, he's the prophet. It's him. He's the one. Here's what it says. The very next verse, chapter 6, verse 15 It says, therefore, when Jesus had perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. So here's the thing. Jesus is is affirming what it is that these guys are attesting. This is the prophet. And Jesus goes, I am. But right now, you're going to try to make me king because that is what you are thinking that I'm coming to do. And I am coming to become a king but maybe not in the way that you think I'm supposed to come and be king. I have a plan, and I have a purpose, and it's not for you to force me into becoming a king. Here's the thing. I don't have a lot of time to go through this, so if you want to get some of these notes, you can ask for a recording of this. Or actually, you don't even have to ask for a recording for this. We, we, can, we have these online from now on. They're, you go onto our website, you can download it, and you can take the notes from there. But here's the thing. I, I had you turn to Daniel chapter 9. I want you to, to look at that real quick. Daniel chapter 9. Prophecy. Daniel chapter 9. In 530 B.C., 530 years before Christ, Daniel writing a prophetic vision from God In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, I don't have time to go through all of them, but all of the verses there, that Daniel, he writes here as this, he's speaking with Gabriel, the angel, and and, and, uh, he's listening to Gabriel. And Gabriel says, Daniel, here, I want you to listen. I want you to to give you understanding. It says in verse 22, um, Gabriel informed me and he talked with me and he said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand at the beginning of your supplications or when you began to pray, the command went out and I have come to tell you, Daniel, for you're greatly loved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. He says, Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Who are Daniel's people and who who is Daniel's holy city? This is Daniel's people or the Jews. Daniel's holy city is Jerusalem. The Jews' holy city is Jerusalem. So he's saying, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for the Jews, and for your holy city, Israel, or for Jerusalem. This is the holy city. To finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make make reconciliation for iniquity. That's what happened in the first coming of Christ. If you're a writer or a note taker in your Bible, you can actually kind of take those three things to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. You can kind of capsulate those and parenthesize those and say that right there is what happened in the first coming of Christ. And then he goes on and he says, now the second coming of Christ, this is what's going to happen in the second coming. He doesn't break it down that way. He says, this is what's going to happen in this 70 week period. Okay, 
In the 70-week period, finish the transgression of sins, uh, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquities. And then, this is what's going to happen in the second coming, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Gabriel then says, Know therefore and understand, Daniel, that going forth from the, that from the going forth of the command, that's a very, very important statement, from the going forth of the command. When the declaration is given of a command to do what? To restore and build Jerusalem. You see, Daniel's writing this, and at the time that Daniel's writing this, there is no, is, there is no Jerusalem. There is a Jerusalem, but it's occupied by enemies, and, and the walls are torn down, the temple is torn down, the, you know, everything is just destroyed. There is no temple. There is no walls to the city. There are no Jews that are, or that are living there other than scavengers that are just scavenging for food because it is a desolate land because Nebuchadnezzar had gone in there and wiped them out. And then the kings that rose up after him, they went in there and they continued to keep them suppressed. And so Israel didn't have a nation at the time. So Gabriel says to Daniel, he says, therefore, under, therefore know and understand, Daniel, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Who are we talking about? Talking about Jesus Christ. Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Add those together, you've got 69 weeks. Now, I don't have time to go in and detail why a week that is spoken of here is actually a seven-year period. But understand this, this, a week that is being spoken of here would be like me saying, if I were to say, in two decades, this will happen. What would you understand me to say? 20 years, right? A decade would be a 10 years. Two decades would be 20 years. In this instance right here, a week is understood as a seven-year period. Not seven actual days, but seven-year period. So it's a seven-year period. He says, know, Daniel, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, because right now it's all crumbled down, right? There is no land. There is no, there is no walled city. There is no temple mount. There is no temple. Here's the thing. From the command to restore and build that, there will, in, in, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 69 seven-year periods. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. But after the 62 weeks, and it's just the way that poetry is written or, or Hebrew was written, they have seven weeks and 62 weeks. After that 62nd week, or actually it's the 69th week, adding the first seven weeks in there, after the 69 seven-year periods, Messiah shall be cut off. The word cut off literally means uh, to be executed. We know it as being crucified. We know it as him being crucified. After the 69th seven-year period, Messiah shall be crucified, but not for himself. Jesus did not die on a cross to save his own sin, to save his own soul. He died on a cross for you and for me. Understand, this right here is being written 530 years before Jesus even came on the scene. And the people of the prince who is to come. Uh Uh-oh, we got another prince on the way. Who is this prince? I know some of you guys know. Who? It's the Antichrist. You're going to come on the scene. 
So Messiah shall be cut off after the 69 seven-year periods. He'll be crucified, but not for himself. It's for you, and it's for me. It's for all who would come to him. And the people of the prince, those who follow the prince who is to come, those who follow Satan, those who follow the Antichrist, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war of desolations are determined. And then he, who is he? The prince who is to come. He, that prince who is to come, shall confirm a covenant or a peace treaty with many for one week. Remember, a week is a seven-year period. Okay? So, for a seven-year period... This prince who is to come is going to present a seven-year peace treaty with Israel amongst its surrounding neighbors. Right now, if you've been in the news, you know that Israel right now is in some dire straits. Its big brother, the United States, is beginning to turn its back on Israel. To our shame. It disturbs me greatly that our leadership and our government is turning its back on our most trusted ally, in the Middle East. And I know, according to what the Word of God says, is that God said, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Our government is beginning to borderline curse Israel and turn its back. Which means, and I don't mean to scare anybody, but here's the thing. If we turn our backs on Israel... I'm one of those that believe the reason that America became the land of plenty, the the land of fields of gold, was because Israel was a little brother to us. And we protected Israel and we have surrounded Israel with, with protection. If you understand, Israel is no bigger than, is, than New Jersey. It's got all these nations around it that hate it and want to put it into the ocean. They're calling for the extinction of Israel. The people that we, right now, our government, in negotiations to have a nuclear peace treaty with, sanctions lifted, a peace treaty with the Iranian government that even just last week reiterated their disdain for Israel and the United States. And here we're in peace treaty agreement with them, you know, trying to establish a peace treaty, which wouldn't surprise me if it happens today or tomorrow, because it has to be done by the end of this month. And our government is pressing to get a peace treaty going on with Iran. I think it's the worst possible situation that can happen. And yet I look at the word of God and I go, but you know, there comes a point where I don't see the United States in in prophecy. I don't see the United States spoken of in Scripture. I know that there's people that really try to show the United States in here, but I don't see it. You really have to reach to, to see the United States in Scripture. Which means that something bad's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen in our country. And I think what's happening in our country is exactly what's happening. It's to turn its back on Israel. Where we will become of no effect in this world whatsoever. We're going to just be a byword. I hope not. I pray that we can reestablish our relationship. But you know what? If it doesn't change, we're just going to be a has-been country because we've turned our back on God completely in our government, in our schools, in our homes. And we think that we are liberated when in all actuality we are dying as a people, 
Our kids are growing up thinking that evil is good and good is evil. If you hold the Word of God out, you're a religious, wacko, fanatic going back into time, into archaic time, listening to mythological creatures say that they're God. And that's what what our kids are growing up with. That's why I wanted you kids to be in here. I wanted you to hear. Know this. The Word of God is a perfect timepiece that has perfectly said what would happen. The reason I have placed these things out here and kind of showed you, hey, 4,000 years ago this said this. 6,000 years ago it said this. 3,405 years ago it said this. 2,032 years ago it said this. 2,530 years ago it said this. And these all came to pass. It's a perfect timepiece. Do you think that it's just going to not become a perfect timepiece from now on? Because it's the day that you're living in? Are you and I so naive as to think that we can be just like the religious rulers and say, it can't happen in my lifetime. Al contraire, my friend, I think it's happening right before our eyes right now. And if there ever was a time for you to be serious with your walk with God, it's right now. It's the reason that Jesus Christ came and died on a cross for you and me. It's for you and I to have peace with God. And if you play games with that, here's the thing. If you don't do what it is that he says, here's what it says. It shall be that whoever, remember I read it back in Deuteronomy 18. It shall be that whoever will not hear God's words through this Messiah, which he speaks in God's name, God will require it of him. You will be required for the knowledge that you've been given. I'm giving you knowledge today. You're going to be responsible for it. This perfect timepiece. It's being laid out here in Daniel chapter 9. It says, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Verse 27, it says, Then he, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, empowered by Satan himself, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. They're going to, he's going to confirm a treaty with Israel because there's a seven-year period that has not happened yet. That's why we call it a seven-year tribulation period. The book of Revelation talks about it all the way from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 19. It talks about what's going to happen in that 1290-day period. It's going to talk about, it talks about what is going to happen. I'm sorry, 1290 days are three and a half years. Another 1290 days. There's, there's a middle of the tribulation period. But at the beginning of the tribulation period, this Antichrist is going to make a peace treaty. What's going to happen is that Israel is going to be able to rebuild its temple. That's what Ezekiel 39 and 40 talk about. Israel rebuilding its temple. Right now, there's not... If you've ever looked at a, at a picture of Israel, you see that big golden dome on top of the, of, of the temple mount? That's not anything to do with Jews. It has nothing to do with you and has nothing to do with me. That is called the Dome of the Rock and it's an Islamic shrine. Off to the, to the south of that by probably 150 yards is the third most holiest site to the Islamic believers. It's the Mosque of Omar. It's a mosque. There's an interesting thing that on top of that Temple Mount, somewhere up there, the Jews are going to be allowed to build a temple. Now, I've been to Israel a couple times. Last time it was back in 2001, right after the, the September 11th bombings. And I went over there uh, Thanksgiving and we sat down with some pretty interesting dignitaries over there. Um, there was no tourism over there at the time. 
went over with, I think, 23 pastors, 24 pastors, including me. We went over there, and as we were walking down the street, we were like rock stars over there because nobody else was there. You walk down the street, Jews and Arabs and Turkish alike, because there's four quarters there in the, in the old city of Jerusalem. There's a Jewish quarter, an Arab quarter, a Turkish quarter, and a Christian quarter. And as you're walking down through all those quarters, you've got people that are coming out of their shops going, are you the American pastors? Are you the American pastors? And we're going, uh, we're from America and we're pastors. And they're going, thank you for being here. I don't care if they were Arabs or Jews. They were thanking us for being there. We had the opportunity to go in and sit into the Knesset. We went into some of the government buildings there. We sat down with the Ministry of Tourism there who buried his hands in his head and wept openly in front of 24 of us. And he says, my kids, I'm so afraid for my kids. They go out. I don't know if they're going to come home. Do you understand the, the, the impact that it is that when I tell my kids goodbye for, at the end of the day, they might go out and wherever they are, some suicide bomber might come in and blow them up. It's happening all over the place. I don't know. This is madness. How do you like to live in that kind of condition? And yet they do. But here's one of the things that we see over there as we were over there. We, we went to the Temple Institute and the Temple Institute, they say, hey, we have the ability to rebuild the temple very quickly. We have every single item that we need to have an operating temple. Which then posed the question. So you guys have the Indiana Jones didn't find it. You guys have it? You know? They said, listen, we have everything. So you do have the Ark of the Covenant. I didn't say we have the Ark of the Covenant. I said we have everything. Okay, can you answer this question? You can't have a temple, an operating temple, without the Ark of the Covenant. Is true or false? True. So what you're saying is you have the Ark of the Covenant. I did not say we have the Ark of the Covenant. I said that we have everything that we need in order. So, so they wouldn't, you know, be tied down. I think they have it somewhere. It's probably under the Temple Mount. But they're ready to rebuild the temple over there. All they need is the permission. That's what the Antichrist is going to do in that seven-year tribulation period. He's going to come in and he's going to allow the Jews, even amongst the Arabs around him, to rebuild their temple on top of that Temple Mount. And Ezekiel talks about how God will... Measure this rod. It's wild. You go into the book of Ezekiel and it says, God says exactly, here's what you do. Take this measuring stick. Measure this, Ezekiel. Measure this. Measure that. Now put up a big wall and that which is on the outside is for the Gentiles. That's for the Arabs. So here's the thing. There is a spot up there on the top of the Temple Mount that if you were to look at it today, you'd see that there's a spot up there big enough to have a temple. How many of you guys have gone up and passed through on I-4 and see the Holy Land experience? You see the temple up there? It's not a big temple, is it? That's how big the temple is, by the way. They kind of made a life-size temple size up there, and it's, it's pretty wild. I love seeing it. But here's the thing. That temple is going to be up there on the Temple Mount someday. There's perfect space for it. There's actually a little gazebo up there called the Dome of the Tablets and the Spirits, of which the Arabs, they don't even care about it. It's just up on the Temple Mount. They just don't want any Jews up there. But it holds no significance to the Muslims. And it's interesting that it's called the Dome of the Tablets and of the Spirits. And what's interesting about it is that in that little gazebo, which is about, it's about this wide in, in circumference. You know, I can't take my arms all the way around, but it's about this wide. And I've stepped in that. And I've, I, I've, I've sat down inside that gazebo little thing on a little brick buildup around it and just looked in there. And it's interesting that, that the name of it is called the Dome of the Tablets and of the Spirits. And I think wait a minute, what was in the Ark of the Covenant but the Ten Commandments, the tablets, where the Spirit of God dwelt? Could it be that this is the actual site that the Ark of the Covenant is going to sit, where the temple is going to be rebuilt? That the Antichrist is going to allow 
the Jews to rebuild in a time of tribulation, in a time of difficulty, they're going to allow. And the Israelites are going to go, yes, right on. We finally have a guy that's going to allow us to build the temple. Now, mind you, as I've been over there in Israel many times, here's the thing, or a couple times, here's the thing. The Jews will sit there and you talk to them. Listen, you know that the guy who's going to allow you to be re- rebuild the temple is actually the Antichrist. And the Jew will say to you, you call him the Antichrist, we call him the Messiah. Wait. Jesus talks about that same guy, that Antichrist. In Matthew chapter 24, he says, when you see, he's talking to the Jew, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place. What's the holy place? It's a temple. Then flee. Leave. They will rent their clothes. They'll rip their clothes. Their eyes will be open for who he really is. They're going to realize at that time that he is the Antichrist. This is what the Bible says. Kids, this is what the Bible says. You think it's a boring book? This is not a boring book. This tells you exactly how things are going to happen. This Antichrist is going to allow this to happen. And in the middle of the tribulation period, three and a half years, it says right here, in verse 27 of Daniel, it says, Then he, this Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, a peace treaty. You guys can build your temple. But in the middle of the week... In the middle of that seven-year period, three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. End to sacrifice and offering in what? In the temple. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Here's what Daniel has been showed. The Antichrist is going to go, and Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, what's he going to do? He's going to go in there, and, and Paul talks about it in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He talks about how this Antichrist is going to go in there, and he's going to proclaim himself that he is God. He's going to say, hey, all of these leaders that have come along all through these years, not one of them have been able to ever cause a peace treaty to happen between Israel and the rest of the world. I did it. Now you have this beautiful temple. We have this big wall that separates the two. It was such an easy fix. And then Antichrist will be walking very near to the door of the temple. And the religious rulers, the Jewish religious rulers, are going to start to get pretty nervous. And he's going to continue to walk. And they can't stop him because he'll have guards around him. And as he walks up, he'll walk through the doors and go into the holy place and then pass the pass the the curtain and the veil and stand in the holiest of holies and say the reason i was able to do this is because i am the messiah and it's at that time that the blinders will fall off of israel and they'll see him for who he really is and then that time of great tribulation happens it's what's right in front of us gang so all that said listen i gotta finish but taking and looking at this and I've got to do this quickly. You've got to have to listen to it on, the, on the, the tape. You remember, I emphasized there in verse 25, Know therefore, Gabriel said, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be 69 weeks, 69 total weeks, 69 seven-year periods. If you take 69 times seven, seven-year periods, 69 times seven, which would 69 seven-year periods, you come out to 483 years. 483 years predicated upon a, and and that was from the command, there's going to be, when the command is given to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince comes, until Christ comes on the scene, 
there's going to be, from the command to rebuild Jerusalem, from where we stand today, Daniel, until Jesus comes on the scene, there will be 483 years. But understand, back in that day, the Jewish calendar was predicated upon a 360-day period. And so we are predicated upon a 365-day period of which every fourth year we have that, that it's 364 and a quarter you know, uh, days every year. But we just every fourth year we have that leap year where we put an extra day in on, Mar- on February 29th. We have this what we call a Gregorian calendar that we operate on. Well, the Jews didn't do that. They operated on a 360-day period calendar. And so here's the thing. If you were to take 360 years, according to Gabriel, from the command that is given forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and we remember the story of Nehemiah. He was the guy that went in and, and rebuilt the wall. In 52 days, he rebuilt the wall, something that was miraculous. Go back and read the book of Nehemiah, and it's a pretty miraculous story. But if you look in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, don't have time to do it, you're going to find out that on the first day of the month of Nisan, not the truck or the car, but that's a month, the name of a month, first day of the month of Nisan, the command to restore and build Jerusalem was given by King Artaxerxes. Who's King Artaxerxes? He was the king of the known world at the time who was a Persian, which is modern-day Iran. How ironic is that? Iran, ironic. How ironic is that? That's good. <laughs> ironic is that? So here's the thing. The king of Iran, who Israel's got a big beef with right now, or actually Iran has a big beef with Israel, Israel just wants peace. They want to destroy Israel and then destroy us, or vice versa, whichever. Whichever can come first and best, that's Iran's plan. The king of Iran said, Nehemiah, why are you displeased in my, in my presence right now? He was a cupbearer. He says, because my people, the city that I grew, that, that are my, of, my, of my heritage, the walls are torn down. The country is no more. And because God gave Nehemiah a soft part in King Artaxerxes, the king of Iran's heart, Artaxerxes said, well, Nehemiah, what is it that you want? What was it that you'd, what you'd like? If you've ever heard the Nehemiah prayer, you know, anybody say, hey, man, I shot a Nehemiah prayer. Well, that's a Nehemiah prayer is that I've got to answer right now, and I don't have time to go and spend 30 minutes in prayer. I just got a quick, Lord, help. Here, here's what I'd like. I mean, that's the Nehemiah prayer is, hey, help God, need help. A quick little prayer. And he does, he prays. And then he says to Artaxerxes, um, I need some time to leave your presence here and to go back and rebuild the wall. And Artaxerxes gives him even a little bit more presence there. He goes, okay, so what do you need? Well, I mean, as long as you ask, I need some wood. All right, done. What else do you need? I I just need wood. I I can't presume upon it. He goes, you know what? Here's the thing, Nehemiah. I'm going to send my my soldiers with you to protect you along the way. I'm going to supply you with the wood to rebuild your walls of your city. How long do you need? That's just a few months, I think. You know, And so he takes off, and he ends up getting an extended leave of time. But here's the thing. Artaxerxes says, go. Go and build your temple. That was the first day of Nisan. Guess what that day was? That day back, back in that day, if you look back and you find the time, the first of Nisan back, and you follow that 360-day period of the Jewish calendar, you go all the way back, what you can find is that that day, 
if you do all the adjustment for our modern day calendar, you'll find that that day is March 14th. Interesting? 445 B.C. And so if you take the, the years, 483 years that Gabriel is talking about, you times it by the 360-day calendar, that comes out to 173,880 days. You go, what does this all have to do with anything? This is a math formula. Well, here, this is going to blow your mind. Listen, if you go back to the time that Gabriel said, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince is cut off or, or crucified, I'll tell you when it's going to happen. Here it is. It's 173,880 days, Daniel. From the day that the command to restore and build Jerusalem is, is fulfilled. Daniel, he doesn't know when the command is going to be given. But on May 14th of 445 B.C., the command was given. And then if you add 173,880 days, guess what we come to? We come to March 14th. Or, or, I'm sorry, to April 6th. 32 A.D. 32 A.D. And so, what does that mean? We'll move back into, and we'll finish with this. Move back into Luke chapter 19. Actually, move over to, uh, yeah, you can stay there in Luke 19, that's fine. I'll just reference uh, Matthew's passage. From April, from that prophecy, people and the religious rulers and the people were well aware that on April 6th of 32 AD, something magnificent was going to happen. Something incredible was going to happen. Another prophet by the name of Prophet Zechariah, let me just share this, and this is very quickly, but some 480 years prior to Christ, Zechariah gave this prophecy. He said, listen, here's how the Messiah is going to come to you, Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and he has salvation and he's lowly and he's riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, wait a minute. I, when we opened up this passage today, you talked about something like that. Yeah, I did. I did. Because Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Well, he's fulfilling prophecy because that's he knew that they said it, and so he set it up that way. Oh, let's look at it. Luke 19 says, when he, going back into our, our passage, verse 28, when he, Jesus had said this, he went up, when he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he came near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples and said, Hey guys, go into the village opposite you where you, as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one else has ever set. Loose him and bring him here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosening him? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of him. Those who were sent departed and they found it just as Jesus had said. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of the colt said, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. They brought the colt colt to Jesus and they threw their own garments on the colt and they set Jesus on the colt 
And as Jesus went away, they spread their clothes on the ground. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude, do you hear that? The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they said, Blessed is he, is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to Jesus from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you this, that if these should keep silent, if the people should keep silent, the very stones that are around the rock, or that are on the ground here would immediately cry out. And as he drew near the city, he saw the city and he wept over it. I don't have time to go into any more of that, but here's the thing. Matthew chapter uh, 21 says this. Jot this note down. You can look it up. Matthew chapter 21. I know I'm throwing a lot at you, man, but this stuff just should jack you, man. You should be into this stuff. If you aren't, get saved. It says this. Um, I'm going to read it. Chapter 21. It says, Now as they drew near to Jerusalem, it's another vision of, uh, it's another uh, version of what happened on that, now, that day. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say that the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done, verse 4, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, who? Zechariah, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt and the foal, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set Jesus on them. And a, listen to this, a very great multitude... Spread their, spread their garments on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before, the, before and those who followed, they cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Thus they are, pro, pro, they are declaring the prophetic messianic passage of Psalm 118 that that the Jews to this day will say, when our Messiah comes, this will be the chant. This will be the declaration that we will say, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the Son of David. That's who we're going to cry out when our Messiah comes on the scene. These guys understand that the Messiah is coming on the scene right there. You go, well, it's because of all the things that he did. No. Why? I have to pose this question. And, and all of this to say this. Why is there a multitude on the Mount of Olives? Think about it. Why is there a multitude on the Mount of Olives? Because Gabriel gave Daniel a prophecy that said on this day, this is when the Messiah is going to come. And he's going to come on the back of a, full, on the back of a donkey. Your Messiah is coming to you on this day, so rejoice. There's a multitude out there. They're not just out there going, hey, cool donkey. They're out there because we know... That the timepiece, the Bible has said on this day, he's going to show up. I wonder who it's going to be. They're all out there waiting. And Jesus crests the hill on the back of that donkey, on the back of that baby colt. There's no contradiction there. One, Luke says, you know, just a colt. Matthew says there's a colt and a donkey. 
There's no contradiction. It's just the emphasis was that, that he was riding on the colt. Somebody that nobody, the colt that nobody had ever ridden on. doesn't negate that there was also a donkey there. It's, it's the mother, probably, of the donkey who had never been separated from the mother. I don't know. We don't know. This last week, a couple, well, yesterday, I went up to my mother and father-in-law's house in, you know, the villages. And while I was at my father-in-law's house, I talked to him about something. Well, you see, I just said, I went to my mother and father-in-law's house. Whose house is it? It's my mother and father-in-law's house. And then my next sentence, I said, while I was at my father-in-law's house, I spoke to him. Right? It doesn't mean that the house doesn't belong to her also. It just means that she's not pertinent to this part of the story. It's the same kind of a thing here. The mother donkey is not really pertinent to the story other than there are, it's, it, the donkey, or the colt, is the one that is pertinent to the story. That's who's pertinent to the story. There's no contradiction there. But they're crying out a prophetic messianic psalm. They'd seen Jesus on the Mount of Olives before and they never said those things. They're screaming, the multitude is screaming this out on that day because they heard that it was the Messiah was coming on that day. Let it sink in for a second, man. That stokes me. You know why that soaks me? Because long before I was a pastor, I saw this and I went, what kind of book is this? I can say such things and they come to pass. My mind was blown. If your mind doesn't get blown on things like this, man, you need to check your pulse, man. Your spiritual pulse. Because here's the thing. It said long before that it was going to happen. And the people believed it. They were all out there waiting to see who would show up. And it was Jesus. Who were ticked off? The religious rulers. Do you hear what these guys are saying out there? Stop their mouths. And Jesus says, you know what? (laughs) If I were to stop the mouths of the people here, creation would break open in praise. I don't know what it sounded like if rocks broken up and started breaking out in praise, but I'm thinking it would be pretty scary. Here's the thing. Jesus affirmed that he was the Messiah. Hang in with this, guys. I know I've kept you too long here today. I really wanted to have a time of prayer where we just focus. But here's the cool thing. I've set a good groundwork for you to take the rest of this week and consider what it is that I've just said. It's the reason we have these palms here. We call it Palm Sunday. Because it was this day that the multitude of people were standing on that mount going, our Messiah is going to show up one somewhere. And we'll know who it is because he's going to be riding on a donkey that had never been written before. And he showed up. And those who had cloaks, they put it on the ground so that they made a place for the king to walk. And if I ran out of my coat, there's more. I stick down, which kind of is kind of interesting. You stick down palm branches. I think it would be kind of slippery going down a hill. But they did it anyways. I don't think Jesus slipped. I think the donkey's pretty sure-footed. But they put these palm branches down, thus putting a kind of like the red robe, the red carpet down for him. And as he walked down, on the back of that donkey with the praises, 
Hosanna. Hosanna. You know what Hosanna means? It's made up of two words. Yasha and Anna. Yasha literally means save us, help us, help us, save us, give us salvation. And Anna means I plead with you, I beg you, mercifully I beg you. And so here's what they're saying. We're begging you, God, give us salvation. Hosanna, save now, God. Save now. You are the son of David. You are God in human flesh. You are who you said you are. That is you. And they're crying out this. And Jesus is walking down. And, 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 and if you think, well, Mount, he went down a whole mountain and then back up the hill. Listen, if, if standing here, I was on the top of Mount of Olives, it would probably be the, the distance that he had to walk was probably from here to maybe twice the distance from here to those, those across the street, those, those, uh, uh, those shops over there across the street that are facing us, probably twice that distance. That's how far it was. It wasn't super far. I've been on the Mount of Olives. I've seen it. I've been there. And it wasn't a long distance, but he had to go down the Mount of Olives and then through the Brook Kidron and then back up through the Eastern Gate. And it made a triumphal entry into the temple court. And he got chewed out for it by the religious rulers. But they were chewing out God's son. Doesn't make sense, does it? That's what this day represents. The people gathered to witness and celebrate the Messiah, their king. However, their preconceived understanding of the coming Messiah was that he would liberate them from the heavy hand of Rome much as Moses did from the heavy hand of the Pharaoh of Egypt, but within a few short days, five days to be exact, they quickly realized that Jesus was not following their script and they quickly turned on Jesus. And on this day, we celebrate Palm Sunday. The people were overjoyed and ecstatic over the triumphal, triumphant arrival of Jesus, screaming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Within five days, they were screaming just as loud, crucify him. Because he didn't meet their expectations. And it's still happening today. It's probably happening in this room right now. You can't wait to get out of this building to go and do something. I don't know what it is. But this isn't important to you. Because God has let you down, you think. God's not lived up to your expectations. God's not doing the things that you thought he should have been doing in your life. Maybe God's word says things that are too hard for you to assimilate into your culture and your moral mindset. Maybe, maybe God and Jesus Christ are just not what you had envisioned or hoped for. And you have jumped the bandwagon, crossed the bandwagon and said, you know what, I was excited the first kind of couple times that I heard about Jesus hanging on a cross for me and I wanted the, the benefit of that. But you know what, I've heard about Jesus and he's let me down way too many times. Nah, I don't want to follow him anymore. It's a bunch of hogwash. I say this. Stop looking at it through your eyes and start looking at it through the perfect timepiece, the Word of God. Because this is a whole lot better than that NIST F2. This timepiece is accurate. It's true. And if everything that it prophesied that was going to happen to Jesus up to the time that he was crucified, up to the time that he ascended into heaven, and the Bible says there's coming a great calamitous day upon the earth where you're going to have to answer for your life or you will allow Jesus to answer for your life. The day's coming. And it's for you and for me. If everything else has happened, 
which no other book, no other religion has this type of, we say this and this happens. There's proof text. Historically accurate. If you want to just chuck it and say it's not a perfect timepiece, well, that's you. But God put a book in your hand that is his love letter to you. It's a reason that Jesus walked into the Jerusalem that day. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Kings. He may not be who you want him to be, but he is everything that this Word of God says he is. He wants to be your Savior. God loves you. God loves me. God wants you to live for him because this world is not worthy of anything that you devote your life to apart from Christ. Father, thank you so much for today. I know I've taken some time. But Lord, this is a very, 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 very important message. I pray, God, that it was articulated in such a way that maybe everyone in this room, everyone who's hearing by audio finally understands what Palm Sunday was about. It was your timepiece being proven perfectly. Once again, as it always does. I pray, God, that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't have a relationship with you, this is the day that they do it. They stop playing games with you and they they do serious business with their heart and they say, you know what? I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I want to have a relationship with God. I do believe that God died on a cross for me. I believe that Jesus was that God in human flesh hanging on a cross for my sin. I'm a sinner. I've lived my life for me. And I, I can't answer my, my own faults before a holy God to get myself into heaven. I am at a loss, a desperate loss to get to heaven on my own merit. I receive you, Jesus Christ, into my heart as my Lord and Savior. I turn away from my sin. I repent. I confess. I turn away. I acknowledge it. And I, and I want you to come into my life. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I, don't know, I know I'm not going to be perfect from this day forward, but Lord, I'm going to have you in me. Now show me the way. Show me the way. Help me to walk in this life. Help me to please you, Lord. The days are truly short and the days are truly evil. I want to be a light in a darkness. I want to be saved. I want to be your child. Thank you, Lord. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray, Lord, that, that we understand that this is, we're getting down to crunch time. We're late fourth quarter. it's time to get serious it's time to be used by you God don't let us miss this opportunity the rest of the world is running away from you Though they may be running away from you, God, 
not to. Help me to stand strong and firm. Regardless of how hard it is, help me to stand strong. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for putting on a human body and coming down here and living amongst us and then dying for us. Thank you for Palm Sunday and thank you for Crucifixion Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Thank you, Lord. Without you, I'm lost. With you, I am found and I have a future and I have a hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.